You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part two of Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Adam Phillips. Would you would you be willing to 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 tell me what you were writing today? I can tell you what I'm writing, but I can't talk about it because talking about what I'm writing when I'm writing it interferes with it. Okay, <laughs> I thought so. But I, what I was writing today was um, the essay for a catalogue of an exhibition that my partner Judith Clark and I are doing at the Barbican in October. The exhibition is called uh, The Vulgar. So I've been writing an essay on The Vulgar. How fascinating. Um, I, I imagine that the, the word itself must be meaningful. Yeah. You know, um, one of the, the quotations you use at the, at the start of um, Unforbidden Pleasures has given me so much pleasure and I've shared it with a lot of people recently, um, in, in part to test them, as so often quotations do, at least they do for me. They are, I use them and then see how people react. Yes, it's a very interesting idea, that, because I think that's right, that they're also probes. It's a bit like finding out whether you're talking to kindred spirits or wondering what somebody else will make of something that you're not sure of. Exactly. I mean, kindred spirits or elective affinities or whether you share adjectives with people, which I've often felt is, is really when you, when you love someone somehow, um, at least for me, you, you share their language. And um, these... these like their language. You, what did you say? Or you love their language. Yeah, I think that's more correct. Um, yes, you want to you want to hear them. Um, I don't know if it's speak or, or you, you want to hear them. That you've got an appetite to listen to them. That's right. But but this quotation, which is so short, um, goes to the heart of of matters. I'm not sure exactly what that heart is. But and I'm wondering why why it is the lead the lead um, epigraph of the book, which is dash to define dash is to distrust. So the quotation reads: "To define is to distrust," and it comes from Lawrence Stern's "The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy." And I'm wondering the why of, of that quotation in the context of unforbidden pleasures. Well, I think when you say it to me now, it makes me think that, and I suppose one bit of this is obvious, that one of the, the questions the book asks is, how does it happen that certain pleasures are defined as forbidden and unforbidden? And, and how different are they? You know, what's the overlap and what's the distinction? So that's one bit of it. I also think there's, there's a larger idea in this, which I love and I'm interested in, which is the extent to which we might be more interested that insofar as we're interested in defining things or people, there's a sense in which we're not really engaging with them. 
It's as though we have to um, shape them in the image that we've made of them rather than allow them to meet us. So I think to define is to distrust means um, be attentive to your formulations because sometimes they're very insulating or very limiting or very, or very confining. And that if you've got confidence in the objects you're tempted to define, there'll be a better exchange with them. You don't need to define them. You can, you can allow there to be an exchange rather than a definition. So to, to, there's a way in which one, one can talk about things without, without defining them, without the... the yes, ne- well, to define someone is to not have a relationship with them. Right. And that in some... Be true, and that would be true of yourself too. That to define oneself is a way, in a sense, of not having a relationship with oneself. It's like casting oneself as something, as opposed to um, allowing oneself to be unknowing in relation to oneself. Which is liberating. Well, it can be all sorts of things, uh, liberation being one of them. And, and defining in some ways playing a part. Yes, or rendering something safe in some sense. That it's as though if you define something or somebody, you know what and who they are and you know where you are with them. You know... Um... Nothing that, I think nothing and nobody that really interests us can really be defined. And and when they are, you know, it, it reminds me of, of a passage that I can only recall vaguely. But in one of the um, notebooks of Max Frisch, he he says that when when you know the other, that's when love comes to an end. When you know, in the sense of, well, I think in the sense of definition. Yeah, yeah. When you in some way contain. Yes, exactly. And you know, um, I've been recently speaking about unforbidden pleasures, as is my want to speak about your work with various people, and one one person sent me a, a quotation um, that made them think so much of unforbidden pleasures. And it's a bit long, but I'm going to um, tempt tempt our listeners to to hear it and for you to react to it. And it comes from Leaves of Grass of Walt Whitman. And he says, I have perceived that to be with those I like is enough. To stop in company with the rest at evening is enough. To be surrounded by beautiful, curious, breathing, laughing flesh is enough. To pass among them or torch anyone or rest my arm ever so lightly round his or her neck for a moment. What is this then? I do not ask any more delight. I swim in it as in a sea. Yes, I love that. Do you? Yeah. I mean, that seems to me that there, um, Whitman is talking about the sort of tacit or unspoken affinities between people, that people are, can be connected to each other in ways that are not verbal. It's almost like biosmosis or something. There can be a tremendous um, uh, both reassurance and excitement and bliss in 
good company in the company that one likes and loves. Yes. And 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 the this is enough of, of Walt Whitman seems so powerful to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's both a, a gra grandiloquence and a humility. But also he can articulate so evocatively the ways in which we don't need to articulate things in order to be in relation with people. We're back we're back to the Lawrence Stern comment. Is, is, I've never asked you this. We've spoken about poetry in the past when we did that Paris Review interview, but I've never spoken to you about Walt Whitman. Is, is he among the, the poets you love? Because I know you love poetry so much. Is he a poet you, you, you love and you read? Yes. Whitman really should be the patron saint of psychoanalysis. Um, it, Good. not that it needs to say. Um, <laughs> I think there is something, I mean, this has been said a million times before, but there is something in, in Whitman that is really un, feels unprecedented. There's real vision, and there's, real, there's a real freewheelingness about the verse that is extraordinary. And it seems to me, you know, it has the quality of, of lots of very good poems, which is that people either really love it or really hate it. They either really don't get it or they really get it. And... You know, Whitman is part of an American tradition of writing, of which Emerson would be comparable and, and in a different way Melville would be. That certainly for me as an adolescent, for me ongoingly as an adult, were, were kind of revelations of writing. That people could allow themselves that kind of scope and that kind of unknowing, knowingness about what they have to say. And the wish to and, and the and the feeling of being able to go with the flow of the words and have confidence that something of value will be said, I love that. Is 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 that why um, American literature and indeed American, I think poetry and criticism mean so much to you? I mean, I I, I don't think I ever ever thought of it quite that way. And I, I think in what you and I have spoken about in the past, we haven't quite spoken about it in this way, which is the idea of scope. Yes, I think for me it's two things. It's that. It's also something to do with uh, being Jewish. I think it's, it's, um, it originally was, as an English Jew an attempt to sort of disidentify from being English or being British. But it was as though I could hear things in some American writers that I wanted to hear and couldn't hear in English writers. Like when I was an adolescent, I had a real prejudice against English rock music. My, my prejudice was, my total belief was, that rock music was American. I could really could never take seriously the Rolling Stones or David Bowie or the Beatles. All that stuff seemed to me then to be kind of quaint. I know this is absurd, but that's how it felt. It felt quaint and very, very over-contrived. Like, yes, that. Whereas when I listened to Bob Dylan or Neil Young or Joni Mitchell or the Allman Brothers or J.J. Cale or whatever, I thought, this is it. This is the real thing. There's vision in this. There's an incredible sort of inventiveness. And that was my, it was like, I mean, I wouldn't have called it this then, but it was like an aesthetic preference. 
And it's, you know, three quarters of my fantasy and one quarter of those people and those objects. And and it was a way of being able to imagine myself or myself as I wanted to be that English or British culture didn't, for some reason, allow me to do. Not, I mean, of course, there are lots of English and British writers that I loved and liked, but there was something about the fantasy of America, of a new world, of the possibility of, of starting again and what that might mean that was really powerful. You, you said uh, that th this fantasy was back then. Um, does that imply that it's, it's changed now? Um, does it also... Yes, a bit, but I've never really recovered from it and never really wanted to. Of course, I've got other thoughts and different thoughts now, but there's a part of me that still feels that. So you've never recovered from America in some way? Yes, I've never recovered from America. <sighs> and I'm capable of saying absurd things like, I love America. Why is that absurd? It's absurd as well because, you know, <laughs> a country built on slavery. Uh, it's a country which has had devastating imperialistic policies, you know, etc., etc. All that stuff we know. But there's something for me about a version of America and Americanness that, that, that works for me, that matters a great deal. That I, you know, what I get from reading Emerson, I can't get from anywhere else. I mean, not remotely anywhere else. There's no no English writer, no Russian writer, no French writer. There is no writer who who gives you what Emerson gives you. Montaigne, for instance. No, I mean, and there. Are, I mean, uh, D. H. Lawrence would be one. You know, I mean, there there are they do exist, but it's it's somehow different. I mean, I've been educated and thoroughly acculturated in what used to be called English literature, and of course, lots lots of it is to me, you know, is, is, is integral to the things I'm interested in. Um, but there was, there's something about the fantasy of America that really got to me. And, and did this passion for, for English literature and then for America happen at a moment you can, dis I mean, if not describe, uh, um, point to something happened where the uh, America and American literature and I think American music and film perhaps became important to you? Something, a turning point? Yeah, well, I, I mean, English literature got to me through a, a teacher I had at school, like a lot of people. Um, but it, it, was like, um, it was like a sort of double life because there was the world of English literature, which I, was re I became really interested in, really gripped by when I was sort of 15, 16. And then parallel to that, but not, but unconnected or disconnected from that, was the world of American music and rock music. And it never occurred to me that these two things could in any way be connected or related. I felt as though one was, one was a sort of more unofficial life, if you like, than the other. Um, and it was only over time that I'd begun to see, partly through reading American poetry and American literature, that I could begin to make connections. Um, but it was a bit like that. It was like having a, in psychonic language, it was like having a split ego ideal. I remember one of my supervisors when I was training said to me, um, I've got a split ego ideal. It's half Donald Winnicott and half Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I think the version of that, but I think it was, as it were, half Donald Winnicott and half Emerson or Whitman or Melville. Or Dylan. Yes, but in a different way. Yes, certainly. And and uh, are these um, 
is is the music still with you? Do you do you listen to it a lot? Oh yes, yes, yes. In some ways, it's grow. You know, it's. I, I was going to say it's grown on me, but in some ways, it's it's. You know, I I like it or love it as much as I did then. It hasn't diminished. I haven't had a disillusionment about it. Do, do you feel it informs your your ability as a psychotherapist? I think it must do, but in a way that's indiscernible. I know that's a sort of nonsense. No, it's it's it's. I it, just think it's been so essential to my growing up that it must be just you know part of who I am. Because I can't imagine myself without it. Well, in the way we were speaking earlier, your your morning walk, um, the way it, it, it informs uh, the first sentence, but in a way that you can't quite describe, the way we were speaking earlier also about quotations, um, we, we, we wouldn't be able to, to hold ourselves up without them. No, and we wouldn't have we wouldn't have such good stories to tell about the value of just what occurs to us. What happens to occur to us? What comes into our minds? I wonder if you can you can answer this question. I had trouble with it. Um, last night, my son, my older son, asked me w why why bother go to college? Why go to university? Um, and he said that he had heard that many people go to to college and university because that is a way for them to find out what they want to do. But he claims that he knows what he wants to do. He loves being at the present time a magician. So why why the need for that delay? Well, I think, I think it's a good question. The only thing I would say is that um, he may be too young to be absolutely certain that he knows what he wants to do. So I suppose as a parent, I would encourage him to experiment with college. I would, I would, I would value the question. In many ways, I would sort of back it. I would say, you may well be right. But I think you should go, go to college and just, just give it a try. Because, because there's a risk, or there may be a risk, to over-narrowing your mind when you're too young, or this is your vocation. And if it is, you'll only do that. You'll only do what, re what you really are, are engaged by. I, I wish I had spoken to you before he asked that question, but that wouldn't have been possible because I wouldn't have known he would be asking me this question. I, I, think, I guess that, that brings me to, to the, the idea that we're never quite ready to answer questions properly. Yes, the, the questions always come too early and too late. Um, but, or and, we can go on answering the question after it's been asked. True. I mean, it stays with me, and it, it stays with me uh, the, the way when I have public conversations, it stays with me what I was not able to achieve, or the, the feeling that the conversation I had was all right, but could have been so much better. Or there is an idea of a conversation somewhere out there, I often say kind of a platonic idea of what a conversation should be or could be, um, which is never quite achieved could also, at the yeah, moment. It could also be true that conversations are by definition uncompleted actions. 
and, and that in a way it's because that's true that one goes on having them. It's a bit like to define as to distrust. The perfect conversation could be the, the end of conversations. Well, this, Adam, is, is why... conversation to aspire to. And, and this is why, Adam, I, I, I think that I always love talking to you because it always sort of vivifies um, a, an appetite, a desire to continue. It's as if, you know, there's no end to it, really. Um, and, and when you said that earlier about your own writing, it seems so interesting to me because, well, because of that, that essay, which I can't quite remember, I can't quite remember its title. Is it called um, Analysis Infinite, Finite, or... Analysis Terminable or Indeterminable. Interminable, um, which, which was all about how you stop an analysis. Yes, and, and why you stop. And who stops it. Yeah. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop this conversation. Because we've had a session. We've had a... a, a yeah, we, actually, we haven't had a session, but I do have to stop the conversation because I'm about to have a session. Well, um, Adam, it's been a real, real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for taking my call, and let's speak soon again. Well, it was a pleasure for me, and thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.